to grab your Bible and to open them up to Judges chapters 5 and 6 as we step into our, our study together. <laughs> I hope you all had a, have had a good weekend. Uh, my weekend has been interesting. I learned to have a, either a fractured rib or some cartilage damage here. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to pull them up out of the water, but by God's grace, we did. Uh, but if you see me getting short of breath, uh, you know, that's why. I'm, I'm going to be having a hard time breathing. But um, I hope you guys have had a great weekend free of injury. Uh, I, I love Sundays because Sundays let us transition from one week to the next. We get to wrap up one week and kickstart a new week all in one day. And, and so I love Sundays because we get to transition by coming together and worshiping Jesus together. And, and as we do this as a faith family time and time again, uh, one of the things that, that I love about our church is our diversity. And across all three of our expressions, ranging from Edmonds to West Seattle and here in Fremont, we have a, a rich diversity among us. A variety of demographics are represented in our faith family. And and what is interesting is that what unites us together, it isn't our uh, socioeconomic status, it isn't our age, it isn't our race, it isn't our gender. What unites us together is our shared faith in Jesus. And with our shared faith in Jesus comes our shared calling to make much of Jesus in the city of Seattle. And when it comes to this dynamic, I want you to know that every single one of you have a role to play. That each and every one of you, as followers of Jesus, you have a role to play in what Jesus is doing in this city and around the world. And I want to look at Judges chapters 4 and 5 because it seems to me that those who are participating, those who are getting involved in what Jesus is doing and in this city and around the world, those are the people who experience a richer and a deeper worship of God in the world that is. You see, these two chapters, Judges chapters 4 and 5, uh, they present a single event in two versions, a single story told from two different perspectives. Chapter 4 gives us kind of a narrative account of what goes down. And what you see in chapter 4 is God using a variety of people to accomplish his purposes for his people, the nation of Israel. But when you step into chapter 5, it kind of changes so that chapter 5 is more of a poetic celebration of all that God does in chapter 4. And so you have this participation and involvement and deliverance in chapter 4 that gives way to worship and celebration in chapter 5. And I want to I show you chapter 5, verse 2 first before we really kind of run through chapter 4 because I want you to see this dynamic at work. Listen to Judges chapter 5, verse 2. When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, that is, when everyone's getting involved, when we are being about the things of God in the world that is, when that happens, check it out, worship occurs. When that happens, the writer says, blessed be the Lord. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled, the skies poured rain, and the clouds poured water, the mountains melted before the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, those who were participating in the activity of God are now worshiping God richly, having experienced the miraculous activity of God, that they begin to see God do things, and we'll spell this out here in a few moments, where he essentially leverages creation to deliver his people from some dire circumstances. On, on Thursday night, Kim and I attended Catalyst 2018. Catalyst is an annual fundraiser for the Union Gospel Mission. And, 
And I don't know about you, but when you listen to the news and read the headlines in our city, everybody kind of laments the homeless crisis and the drug problems that have increased in our city over the past five to six years. And you don't hear many stories about God's grace and power, and it can leave you kind of scratching your head wondering, well, has God abandoned this city? Where is God in the thick of all that is going down? All the problems of, of our city seem too insurmountable for us to see God doing, do anything significant. In fact, all the stories we hear, they just kind of speak to our sociopolitical dysfunction. There's not much hope found there, but on Thursday night, when I gathered with business and ministry leaders along with other disciples who weren't content to sit back on the sidelines and just lament all the problems in this city, people who were actually getting involved saying, look, our God has not abandoned us. Our God is at work in the city, and we're going to join him in the thick of it as I was surrounded by a large number of business and ministry leaders celebrating what God was doing that I wouldn't have heard about outside of that context. And what I found in that moment was my heart was, was beating in a hopeful direction. I began to consider, you know, Seattle's not a hopeless city because God is at work in this city. He's doing things, but he's doing things that only those who are in the thick of it are going to be able to see. Usually, if we have a hard time wondering, where is God at work in this city? Where is God at work in this situation? It's probably because we've been spending our time on the sidelines. And there are some things you can't see God do until you step out in faith and you get into the thick of what he is doing. And this is what I want us to consider as we can look at this tonight's passage. Because God is at work all around us. He's constantly doing things, but only those... But those who see it and those who are affected deeply by it are those who step into it. And what is interesting, when you read chapter 5, you get this dynamic about uh, leaders leading and the people volunteering, everybody getting involved, and then worship bursting forth. But as you continue reading through chapter 5, this song that was written by a woman named Deborah, she begins to call out those who are standing on the sidelines. And she has some sticky things to say to people who just want to stand back and lament everything that's wrong and not get into thick to do something about it. And listen to what she says. Pick it up in verse 16. She says, Why did you sit among the sheep pens listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks? In other words, why are you more concerned with your entertainment than your engagement? You're more worried about being entertained than you are about being engaged in the activity of God in the world. That's what that question is implying. She goes on, there was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. This is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, you know, many people were trying to process and discern what they should do, but they started processing and trying to discern so much that they never did anything. And so they just kind of got stuck in the muck of their own discernment process. There are some things that you just need to do as a Christian. There are some things that you just need to do. You don't have to analyze and discern everything that you have to do or that you should do. If there's a need in front of you and you are aware of something going on, chances are you don't have to spend much time in prayer about whether or not you should take part and whether or not you should serve someone or whether or not you should love someone. This is the indictment on Reuben. They were so busy discerning everything, they didn't do anything, but then they go on. Gilead remained by the Jordan. Dan, why did you linger at the ships? Asher remained at the seashores and stayed in his harbors. The people of Zebulun defied death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. In other words, these were people who refused to take risks. They didn't want to put themselves out there to join in what God is doing. And they're being called out in this passage. And then you drop down to verse 23. This is where she really gets pointed. Quoting the angel of the Lord, she says, Curse Meraz, 
bitterly curse her inhabitants. For they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord with the warriors. In other words, God curses those who are content with standing on the sidelines and not being about the things of God in the world. Those who would claim to have faith in him, those who would claim to trust in the gospel and yet stand on the sidelines, this passage has something very hard about that to say. You know, it's been said that many churches kind of look like a football game on Sunday afternoon where you have 22 people on the field who need a break and you have about 68,000 people who need to get some exercise. That there needs to be a, a flip of the script. There needs to be some adjustments here. And you know that it's the players in the game who are having the most fun. Yes, they're risking their bodies because football is a dangerous game, but they're also reveling in the glory. They're experiencing the joy of the moment, participating in the game. Well, as followers of Jesus, we have the privilege of participating, the privilege of being about the things of God in this world, participating in his redemptive activity. And yes, our participation will require risk. Yes, our participation will demand faith. But do you understand that our participation also, also puts us in a position to revel in glory? That when you join Jesus and what he is doing around the city, you're going to find your worship being enriched. You're going to find your experience of God deepening and deepening as you're taking steps of faith and joining Jesus in what he is doing. Now turn back to chapter 4 of the book of Judges. Because essentially that's what this chapter illustrates for us. Now when you read the story that's found in chapter 4... Understand that it is unlike the three stories that have preceded this. Over the past few weeks, we've learned about a guy named Othniel and a guy named Ehud. And then at the end of chapter 3, we're introduced to a guy named Shamgar. And each one of those stories kind of centers on God's use of one individual in an isolated situation or an isolated circumstance. And when you put them together, you find a rich variety and a rich diversity among them. None of them are like each other. You have Othniel, who was an upstanding family man with a proven military track record. A guy that nobody was surprised that God would use because he was of high moral fiber and a man of apparently strong faith. But then we're introduced to Ehud, and Ehud, on the other hand, was surprised everyone because he was more of a handicapped assassin. And he was used by God in a peculiar way. But then you come to verse 31 of chapter 3, and you, and you meet Shamgar. And it appears that Shamgar was a farmer who used a cattle prod to strike down 600 Philistines. So you have these three people being used by God in three different ways. But when you step into chapter 4, you have that same dynamic. But understand that these three individuals are all pulled into one story. And all three of these individuals that you find in chapter 4 are different from each other. And they are used by God in different ways to bring deliverance to the people of Israel who are being oppressed harshly. These three people that you're going to meet concerns a judge, a general, and a housewife. And there's some things we can learn about each one of them and how they participated in the things of God. Let's pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Consider the judge first. Now stop me if you've heard this. When the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It seems like I'm saying that every single week. And they did this after Ehud died. So the Lord then sold them to King Jabin of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. 
The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nation. So here's the situation. You have Jabin the king, and then you have this commander named Sisera. You want to imagine a relationship kind of like Star Wars, where you have Emperor Palpatine kind of puppeteering everything from the background, but then you have his commander, Darth Vader, out and about doing things. And you know in that story that when Vader falls, that opens the door for Palpatine to fall, and that's kind of the dynamic that you have here between Jabin and Sisera. Verse 3, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots. Now, these were killing machines. They were, design, they were the most ferocious military vehicles and machines that existed in antiquity. You could compare them to our tanks today or our warships today. We can do a lot of damage if we have superior technology to our enemies. Well, this is the situation Israel was facing. So you have this guy named Jabin with 900 iron chariots, and he harshly harshly oppressed them 20 years. And then in verse 4, we meet the judge. We're told Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. Now, there are some people who do not participate in what God is doing because they don't feel empowered to do so by the church. And it is a strange irony that a person may be empowered and gifted by God and yet not be encouraged by the church to serve God and to do the things of God. And sadly, this is the experience that many women have with churches today. Women who are gifted and empowered by the God who created them, gifted and empowered by the God who sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again for them. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit, gifted and empowered by the Spirit to serve Jesus and to make a difference in this world. Yet far too often churches aren't encouraging them and releasing them and platforming them to serve according to the way in which they are empowered. Now, this story is perhaps the clearest story out of any in the Bible that gives us a glimpse into the way God does empower women. He uses women for his purposes. So you learn a few things about Deborah that are quite noteworthy. First, she was a judge. Now, she was judging Israel. She was settling disputes. Now, there are some who read this story and they argue that she's doing this because men weren't stepping up to do it. And they'll say, well, since men aren't stepping up to fill that void, then, then Deborah had to do that. So she's kind of doing something that's necessary. And, and they'll kind of reason that way. And, and I've heard that take on this story many times. But I'll be honest with you, there, there's not much in the story itself that substantiates that, that conclusion. There's not much in the story itself to substantiate that problem. It, it doesn't seem like she's serving out of necessity. It seems like she's serving out of her giftedness. Because she was settling disputes before she summoned Barak and before all this stuff goes down in the story. No, I think Deborah was serving as a judge because she was gifted to do so. She was a wise and respected influencer of people. But not only is she a judge, this might catch us, some of us by surprise, but it says she was a prophetess, that she was a prophet. <laughs> this means that Deborah was someone who brought God's word to people. She brought God's perspective on situations, perspective on circumstances that, that needed, a perspective that needed to be brought. She was a prophet who brought God's word to the people of Israel. And I don't know if this surprises you, but it probably shouldn't given the number of female prophets that you find in the Bible. There are a lot of women serving God in this way in the scriptures. I'll give you a list of some of them. In the Old Testament, you have a woman named Miriam. 
Miriam was Moses' sister, and she's referred to as a prophet in Exodus 15. A woman named Huldah in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, another prophet. Noadia in Nehemiah chapter 6, prophesying, bringing God's word to bear on people's lives. Then you have the prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. And even when you get into the New Testament, you have women like Anna in Luke chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 21, you find Philip's daughters, and they are prophesying in some way. They're bringing God's perspective on people's lives and situations and circumstances. They were speaking words that would build people up in their relationship with God. And so it seems to me that God empowers women to serve in the same ways as men. And I think when you get into the New Testament, you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we find women being encouraged to pray and encouraged to prophesy in the gathering of the church. You find Priscilla, another example in Acts chapter 18, this woman who would teach Apollos along with her husband, teach this new disciple the things of God because she was a theologian and Apollos was new new to the faith and he had a lot to learn. And so Priscilla and her husband invested in Apollos to build him up so that he could serve in his giftedness. It's it's an incredible thing to see this empowered woman empowering someone else to grow in their faith and to serve. So here you have Deborah being affirmed as a judge and a prophet. And I believe we do ourselves a disservice when we are not encouraging women to use their gifts, to use their talents, to use their skills in every arena of life, in arenas outside the church and arenas inside the church. We do ourselves a disservice when we neglect that or we don't encourage that. But then you go, and there's one more description that's noteworthy and we have to call attention to. You have to consider why this prophetess who is judging Israel, she's also referred to in this way as the wife of Lapideth. Now, I think this is important that she's referred to as the wife of Lapideth because even though she is a prophet and even though she is a judge, she's still identified in relationship to her husband. So there's still some respect. There's still still some deference. There's still some type of order that exists in the home that she would be referred to as the wife of Lapideth. Now, nowhere in the scriptures do you find men being referred to in this way. That's just the reality of the Bible. Never do you see Joshua, the husband of so-and-so. They're not associated with their wife in that way. And the reason why I think that is the case is because I do believe that all throughout scriptures there is, a, there is a, an order of harmony, not of hierarchy, but an order of harmony that is to be observed in the home and in the church as it relates to male-female interactions. And though she is a, she's referred to as the wife of Lapideth, and it's saying, look, yes, she's empowered. She's thriving as a judge. She's thriving as a prophetess. And she's still a wife of this man, Lapideth, and it seems as though Lapideth is the servant leader of his home, that he is the husband, he is the shepherd of the home, so to speak. That's why he's being referred to in this moment. And here's what I love about this. Lapideth was secure enough to be in a marriage with a strong, gifted woman. This is the only thing we know about him in this passage. He isn't presented in any other way. We're just pre- he's presented as a man who's like, yeah, uh, She and I, we're together, yeah, in the home. I'm I'm leading our home. It's my home, it's my tribe, it's my family, however you want to say it like that. And I'm not intimidated by this strong woman God has gifted me with. I'm not trying to hold her back. I'm not trying to reel her in. I want to empower her and to release her to serve God in all the ways that she is empowered to do so. It's a strong man in Lapideth, a strong testament to his character that he's referred to, I believe, in this way. So you find this dynamic where Deborah's serving as a judge, a prophetess, and a wife all rolled into one. And I love this about Deborah. 
Far too often when we talk about women's ministry and we talk about women in ministry and we talk about discipling women, far too often we restrict and reduce their discipleship to two functions. We want to help them become good mothers and good wives. And that tends to be the whole conversation that we have about women in ministry and all the conversation about what women's role is in the church or in society. But here, Deborah blows all of that out of the water. Saying, look, your calling by God, ladies, isn't, yes, it's to thrive as a wife and a mother if that is God's assignment for you, but there's so much more to it. This is why I love our women's ministry because when our women's ministry comes together, they're not just zeroing in on those two areas as important and as noble as they are. They're going deep in the things of God. They're spurring one another, teaching and instructing each other to grow as godly women who have deep and rich theology. They're trying to discover their gifts that can be unleashed in the life of the church and unleashed throughout every arena of society so that all of the women in our faith family are contributing to human flourishing in every discernible way. I love this about our women's ministry. So this coming weekend, when we have donuts and discipleship, I hope you don't have, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, assumptions or presumptions about what women's ministry looks like. Oh, we're going to come together and talk about uh, uh, things that you might not be interested in. I don't want to offend anybody. And so I would encourage you to consider how, consider how our women's ministry, when they come together, no, they come together to do business. They come together to dive deep into the things of God and to spur one another on in the ways of God. They come together to see how can we unleash the ways in which God has gifted us to the betterment of other people around us. So you have a remarkable example in Deborah, a remarkable example of a woman who's leading in society, who's leading in religiously, and she's leading domestically or she's serving domestically. It's a remarkable, holistic portrait. When I think about my daughters, think about Delaney and Adeline, when I pray for them, I'm praying in this direction for them. Yes, if God desires for them to be a wife and a mother one day, I want them to thrive as wives and mothers. But I also want them to thrive in the various ways that God has gifted them and empowered them to bless other people in this world. I want them to to go after the desires of their heart that God births within them. I want them to go after them full throttle by faith in the grace of God to contribute to the flourishing of those around them. That's what I pray for my daughters. I pray holistically. And I would encourage you, if you have daughters, to pray holistically for your daughters. Don't just pray for their spouse and don't just pray for their future kids. Pray for their lives. Pray for their influence. Pray pray for their giftedness. Pray holistically for the daughters in your lives or the ladies in your lives. So you have a wonderful example in Deborah of a woman who's being empowered by God to serve and to influence in a variety of ways. And we need to champion God's empowerment of women in the life of the church and all throughout every arena of society as well. But then you keep reading the story and we're introduced to a general, a different kind of guy who's used in a different way. Verse 6, it says that Deborah summoned Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And listen to how Deborah responds, I will gladly go with you. 
But you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him. And Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Hobad, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zananim, which was near Kadesh. And we'll talk about why that is here in a moment. Verse 12, it was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots and all the troops who were with him from Harasheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So to Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth of the nations. And the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. So here we meet Barak, this general. And his story in this moment can be read in one of two ways. There's a traditional take on Barak that kind of has a negative uh, take on who he is and what he does in this passage. Negatively, there are some who say, well, when Barak says to Deborah, if, if you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go, they say he's waffling in his faith. And since he waffled in his faith, uh, as a consequence, Deborah tells him that the Lord will now sell Sisera to a woman, that he will no longer receive honor from the battle that he is about to engage in. And that's a very common take on Barak's story, but there is another way to look at this. There's a more positive dimension, I think, that we should look at Barak, and that is in verse 9, when she tells him, I will gladly go with you, and she said, but you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. I don't think this is an indictment on his lack of faith. I don't think this is a consequential statement. I think this is a prophetic statement of fact that Barak, to his credit, humbly accepts. He humbly accepts that though he's about to lead the charge and go into battle, honor from that battle, the honor of taking down Sisera is going to go to a woman. This is a fact that he humbly accepts, and I think that speaks to his credit. I, I think it speaks to the humility and the quality of his faith. I think what, what Barak is saying in verse 8 is very similar to what Moses says to the Lord in Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, there's this moment where Moses is supposed to lead God's people into the promised land and listen to what he says. He says, if your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. Saying, if you're not going with me, I don't want to go. Was that a lack of faith on Moses' part? Or was Moses squaring up his faith saying, look, I'm going to go, but I only want to go where you're going to be. And so I think when Barak is saying, look, I'm only going to go if you go with me, I think he's essentially saying the same thing. Meaning if he's going to make a decision, if he's going to make a choice, if he's going to do anything in this world, he wants to make sure he's choosing and acting and deciding in accordance with the word of God. The word that has come to him from God through his spokesperson, from God through this prophet. He's saying, look, I don't want to go forward unless I know I am acting in accordance with God's word. I think this is tremendous faith on his part. And I think this is why in Hebrews chapter 11, Barak is commended for his faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, he's talked about 
positively. He's commended for the faith that he exercised, and this is why. So I think when it comes to Barak, we're reminded that if we're going to participate in the activities of God in the world, it will always require faith. And it will require a certain kind of faith. And we can learn three things about faith in Barak's example. I think we see faith that is trusting in God's word. A faith that says, everything that I do, I want to do in accordance with the scriptures. I want to do in accordance with what God has spoken and what God has revealed. That's where his faith is placed. And that is where our faith must be placed as well. So that when we're making decisions or we're assessing situations or we're choosing to act or not to act in this world, we're making our choices in light of what God has spoken. We're trusting his promises. We're obeying his commands. We're living our lives according to his word. It takes faith to do that. But not only do you see in his faith a faith that is trusting God's word, you see a faith that is going to trust God's word against remarkable odds. I mean, you consider the strategy that God laid out for Barak. He said, look, I want you to take your 10,000 foot soldiers and I want you to go to the, Mount of, uh, to the top of Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Tabor was basically an upside down bowl. And so it is a terrible strategy for you to take 10,000 troops and go to the top of this mount because 900 chariots could easily circle the bottom of that hill, keep you pinned in, and destroy you. And so it looks as though God is telling Barak to do something that will lead to his loss, that will lead to his demise. His obedience at first looks like death. But what you find in Barak is a man who's trusting God beyond what he's seeing, beyond what he's sensing. The word of God is with him. The word of God is upon him. So he goes to the Mount of Tabor, leading his troops up this in obedience to God's command. And what looks like death to everyone involved turns out to be the, the way God gets the most glory. Because what happens is he goes to the top of this mount, the 900 chariots surround him, pin him in, they're ready to destroy him, and then we learn in Judges chapter 5 that God began to send the rains, and God began to raise the rivers, and the bottom of the mount began to flood, and what happened is God took out those iron chariots so that those iron chariots got stuck in the mud, they, they became ineffective, they became useless, and so all the soldiers had to get out of the chariots and from that vantage point, all of a sudden, uh, Barak and his soldiers have the high ground. They're in the advantage. They are in position to take out Israel's enemies, and that's exactly what they do. He's trusting God against all odds. And there are times when God is going to call you to do things that immediately and initially it will look like death to you. And you're going to think to yourself, well, if I do that, I'm going to fail. If I do that, I'm going to lose. If I do that, I'm going to die. And could it be that God is calling you to do those things to put you in a position where you can experience the most wonder and the most miraculous activity of God in your life? Is it possible that God is putting you in a position to see his glory richly, to deepen your worship of him in this world? This happens for Barak and all the soldiers as God comes through for them. So you have this nature of Barak's faith, trusting in God's word against remarkable odds. But then there's another dimension that I think is very important, and it's the dimension that Barak was willing to accept his assignment, that he accepted his assignment. Remember, Deborah told him, honor's not coming to you, it's going to someone else. Sisera is going to be taken out by a woman, and we'll talk about why that is here in a moment. But you have this humility of faith that accepts his assignment. Even though it would come without honor and without glory, he does it anyways. I love this dynamic of faith. I think this is what humility looks like. Humility looks like accepting your assignment from God. 
Humility looks like being a faithful steward of whatever time, whatever talent, whatever treasure you have been given by God in this world, whether it's a lot or a little. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable, the parable of the five talents, where you have this story Jesus tells about a master who has three servants. And before he goes on a trip, he gives each servant a different number of talents. To one, he gives one. To another, he gives two. To another, he gives five. Now, it wasn't very egalitarian. It wasn't very even. He gave different people different gifts, different talents, different opportunities. But he had the same expectation for all of them. His expectation was for them to take their talents and to invest them, for them to take their talents and to use them. They were not expected to, man, I only got one. There's not much I can do with this, so I've got to protect it. I've got to preserve it, so I'm going to go bury it in the ground. And then another guy says, well, I only got two. There's not much here. I can't risk what little I have, so I'm just going to go bury it in the ground. And then the guy with five was like, I got plenty. I'll go invest whatever. It, it was this situation where when the master returns and he sees these two guys with one and two talents, burying them, preserving them, protecting them, essentially being selfish, he steps, onto the, he steps back onto the scene and he begins to judge them and they miss out because they opt out of using their talents They receive a harsh verdict from the master when he returns. But the third guy who took his talents and he used them and he leveraged them for, he put them to use, the master steps up and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter the joy of your master. Come and be with me, thrive with me, flourish with me. This is the dynamic of the Christian life. This is what it looks like to either opt out from the purposes of God or to buy into the purposes of God. Every one of you have given talent, have been given time, talents, and treasures from the Lord. And the question is, are you going to put them to use? Or are you selfishly hoarding them, holding back, saying, well, I don't have enough to give. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough treasure. I don't have enough talent. So I'm just going to hold on to what I have so I don't lose anything. And God is, is saying to you this afternoon, you, you need to recalibrate You need to rethink your approach to this thing in life, this thing called life, because when Jesus stepped onto the horizon of your life, he did not say to you, okay, I want you to watch me attentively. No, he said, I want you to follow me. I want you to be about what I'm about in this world, and this is the calling of the Christian. This is the role of the church in the city of Seattle. We aren't to step back and to hoard everything. We are to go forward and in faith use everything for the glory of God and for the good of others. That's what faith does. But then you come to this third character, the housewife, beginning in verse 17. And this is where the story gets very interesting. Because we pick up in verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, get this, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground. And then you have three of the most superfluous words in all of the Bible, and he died. (laughs) You you hardly need that that description. (laughs) Verse 22, when Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man you were looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. 
That day God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. So here we meet Jael. And Jael, it appears, was a housewife. She was married to a guy named Heber the Kenite. Now remember, Heber's the guy who abandoned God's people. He was the guy who picked up tent and moved as far away from the people of God as he could get. Why? Because he was conspiring with King Jabin. He sided with the enemy. So what you have in Jael's story is a woman who's married to an unfaithful guy. Marrying to, she's married to a man who's not a good servant leader in the home. She's married to a man who isn't encouraging the things of God in their family, she is, who isn't encouraging uh, God's ways among them. She's married to a man who's leading her away from the things of God. And so she's a housewife married to a bad dude who's far removed from the action of God or the activity of God in the world. And you can imagine her thinking to herself, will I ever be given an opportunity? Will there ever be time for me to get involved in what God is doing? Will there ever be a time for me to to do something uh, in cooperation with God's work in the nation of Israel? Then you come to this moment, she's given an opportunity, and, and well, she nails it, right? You like that, don't you? She's given an opportunity. This guy in God's providence shows up at her tent, and she nails it. She gets it right. She, she goes to work. She gets involved. Now, consider this. She takes a tent peg. One thing you got to understand about this tent peg is that a tent peg was a common tool of an house, ancient housewife. It was the, the wife's responsibility to set up tent whenever a family would move. And so this was a tool she was very familiar with. If you want to put it in some 1950s terms, this would be like a housewife grabbing a frying pan and smacking Cicero over the head with it. That's essentially what's going down in this story. And I know it raises eyebrows, it raises questions, and and we're wondering, well, how could Cicero do something like this, and how can we say this was a part of God's activity in the world? Well, I would remind you to think about it this way. Cicero was not an innocent man. And what you have going down in Sisera's life is a picture of justice. And I would say you have a picture of poetic, pure justice in what goes down in his life. And here's what I mean by that. If you turn over to uh, Judges chapter 5, verse 30, you're going to see a description of the type of guy Sisera was. And it might surprise you. And I think this is why God would give honor to a woman in taking him out. Check it out. Judges chapter 5, we'll pick up reading in verse 28. This is a song that Deborah is singing, and she's giving us Sisera's mother's perspective on where her son is and what her son is up to. And listen to what she says. Sisera's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice, crying out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't I hear the hoofbeats of his horses? In other words, where is my son? He has not returned. Then listen to her conclusion. Listen to her conclusion along with everybody else's. Her wisest princesses answer her. She even answers herself. Everybody knows where Sisera should have been after, the vic- after, after that moment. And here's, why, or here's where. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil, a girl or two for each warrior? The spoil of colored garments for Sisera, the spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck. You see, Sisera had a reputation. If he was alive today, he would be involved in human trafficking. If he was alive today, he would be a man with a reputation for raping women. This is who Sisera was. And so in a brilliant stroke of providential and poetic justice, uh, Jael takes him out. He's taken out by the hand of the very one he would probably have been pillaging and oppressing and afflicting in egregious ways had he and his army been successful. 
So when you read about Sisera getting a tent peg in the head, I hope you don't read that and start trying to defend him. What you're getting in that moment is a, is a picture of justice, of pure justice. And I think it's put in the Bible for a reason to remind us of the types of justice that will, be, that will come into the world one day. Now, to be sure, you and I live on this side of the cross, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. This means that you and I are never to look at Jael's story and go and do likewise, right? She's not Jesus. We don't imitate Jael in this moment. But what we do is we step back from the cross and we listen to all the, everything else that God would reveal about his ways and his purposes in the scriptures and we would discover that he tells us time and time again, look, don't take vengeance into your own hands. He says, trust that vengeance belongs to the Lord and he encourages his people in every generation. Remember, you may be oppressed, you may be afflicted, you may be mistreated, but it is not yours to take, a t- take up a tent peg and to drive it in the temple of your oppressor. He's saying, no, you need to trust me to do that. One day, my justice is coming into the world, and when my justice comes, I'm going to right every wrong. And there's not a hint of injustice or oppression that will be overlooked and will go unchecked in the world that is. This is the reality of our God. This is the beauty of our Jesus, who when you read in the book of Revelation, he's coming on a white horse to judge the nations. He's coming on the white horse to settle the score. He's coming on a white horse to alleviate all oppression and to right every wrong that's ever been railed in an unjust, oppressive fashion in the world that is. That is going to be a remarkable day. And I assure you that the justice that's going to fall on that day will be far more intense and far more just than a tent peg in the temple of a, white, of a woman abuser and a woman user. There's a reason why we as Christians believe in hell. There's a reason why we as Christians teach hell and we talk about hell. We talk and teach about hell because hell is where God's justice prevails. Hell is where oppression and injustice meets its final just end. So when you read the story of Jael driving a tent peg into this man's temple, understand you're just giving a little foretaste a little foretaste from a biblical theological perspective, a little foretaste of what will come one day in the end. Justice will come. Nobody will escape it. And the reality is every sinner in this world will be judged either at the cross of Christ or in hell. And your life will either be judged at the cross of Christ or in hell. And so what we do as followers of Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus, believing that who went to the cross, he went to the cross because God is just. He went to the cross because my sin is wrong and I'm not right and God is going to right every wrong in the world and that means he can't let me go free. He would not be just to let me go free without some type of consequence being paid. But the beauty of the gospel is Jesus steps up and he says, look, I'm going to take this for you. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to absorb God's justice. I'm going to satisfy God's wrath. I'm going to do for you what you could not stand to do for yourself. I'm going to right every wrong. So we worship Jesus. We celebrate Jesus because he... He made a way for us to be saved, to be delivered, not from earthly oppressors only, but to, to be delivered from our own sin and our own wickedness, our own rebellion. Jesus made a way for us to be delivered, and he delivered us in a way that holds God up to be as just as he is. Because God is never sweeping our sin under a cosmic rug. He's never overlooking it, at, overlooking it as if it's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. That's why the cross is necessary. That's why Jesus did all that he did for us. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we celebrate Jesus. And I think when you come back to Jael's story, this is why she's referred to as a blessed woman. In chapter 5, verse 24, we read, Most blessed of women be Jael. Why was she blessed? Well, she was blessed because in in that moment, 
When providence gave her an opportunity to side with the people of God and to identify with the God of Israel, she says, here am I, send me. She says, I don't have much, but I have a tent peg. I'm going to put it to use. <laughs> you see, it's not so much that she, was, she had the ability to overcome this guy, and it's not so much that she was, uh, had various abilities. It was that she made herself available. She said, here am I, send me. And if you're going to participate in the things of God in the world, it's not so much tied to your ability as much as it is tied to your availability. When you, like the little boy, he comes to Jesus with five loaves of bread and two fish, and he says, here, I don't have much, but take it, use it. And Jesus takes it, he breaks it, he blesses it, and he distributes it far and wide, doing exceedingly and abundantly more than that little boy could have ever asked or imagined by feeding the multitude with so little food. That's what we're going after. You might not have much. You might not have a lot of margin in your schedule. You might not have a lot of margin in your checkbook. You might not have a lot of uh, talents in your life, but what you do have, you can put to use. It's not about being able. It's about being available. This is the reality of all these stories, ranging from Deborah through Barak to Jael. And I would encourage you to consider whether or not you are making yourself available to the purposes of God in this world. Are you considering how the Lord Jesus did not say to you, come, step into my kingdom, and then just watch me? Or how the Lord Jesus said, come, step into my kingdom and follow me. I'm going to lead you into the thick of things. I'm going to lead you into the thick of things where you are serving and blessing those around you. You are making an impact on this world for the glory of God and the good of others, advancing my kingdom, seeing me build my church. That's the way of the Christian life. That's the way of our discipleship. Jesus saying to us, follow me. And when you follow Jesus, you better believe he's leading you into the thick of things. He's not leading you to the sidelines. Let's pray.